the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. This afternoon, we are starting a new teaching series. It's entitled Confidence. It's a series that's linked to a new resource from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, LICC. The resource includes a 40-day devotional journey with suggested Bible readings and insightful notes designed to help us be better equipped to represent Christ on our front lines. Now, if you'd like to access that confidence devotional journey and follow the reading plan alongside the Sunday teaching, then you can sign up for it via the LICC website or by using the link on the front page of Focus. But if you use the YouVersion Bible app on your smartphone, you can also access it there. Just search for LICC forward slash confidence in amongst the reading plans and you'll find it. In his introduction to the Confidence Devotional Journey, Ken Benjamin, who is the Director of Church Relationships at LICC, says this. On a Sunday morning, when surrounded by other Christians, it's easy to feel full of confidence in our faith. But we often struggle to maintain that confidence in our Sunday, in our Monday to Saturday lives. Now, if you've already started following the LICC plan, you'll see that there are six sections to it, and each one seeks to help us consider how we might grow faith confidence. But for us, here on a Sunday afternoon, because there is no Sunday afternoon service on the Sunday following the big church day, we will be considering only five of the six sections. So you may want to keep in sync with the readings um, if you want to uh, do that with us. So before we look at a few verses from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, I'd like to start by telling you a true story. Spanning a distance of 1.7 miles, the Golden Gate Bridge is almost certainly San Francisco's most iconic structure. The suspension bridge joins Marin County, California, to the city of San Francisco itself. Upon its completion in 1937, the bridge was described as an engineering marvel. The building work happened over two phases, over four years, and during the first phase, no safety devices were used, and progress was slow. Sadly, 23 workers lost their lives falling from the bridge. At the start of the second phase, the chief engineer, Joseph Strauss, insisted on the installation of a safety net. Work on this second phase progressed rapidly, and whilst there were several recorded instances of workers falling from the bridge, they all fell into the safety net. None were killed. The result of Strauss's intervention resulted in the project being completed early, and even more surprisingly, under budget. You see, once the workers were assured of their personal safety and security, their passionate and wholehearted dedication to the task of bridge building was guaranteed. And security is a critical element of life, but unfortunately it can be very elusive and is often under threat. Instances of risk to physical security or national security, financial security, online security and food security, to name but a few, fill our media feeds. Having a sense of personal security helps us to thrive. It positively affects our physical and mental well-being. It gives us the necessary encouragement to live life to the full. And what's true for us physically and emotionally is also true for us spiritually. If we have a desire to live out our Christian lives to the full in passionate and wholehearted dedication, then being assured of God's eternal love becomes the spiritual safety net that fuels our faith confidence. 
Now our reading for this afternoon comes from chapter 8 of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. But as we so often comment, diving straight into a section of scripture without giving any thought to context leaves us open to possible misinterpretation or misapplication. And sadly, we don't have the time to explore in any detail what Paul has been unpacking over the first eight chapters of his letter. A letter that's written to both Jewish and Gentile Christians in first century Rome. But I can suggest to you a few resources that you might like to investigate. Firstly, why not take time to read the earlier chapters of the book yourself? Or secondly, go to the Bible Project website and watch both of the short overview videos that are there that outline Paul's letter. In addition, if you're interested in getting to grips with the totality of Paul's letter in a very accessible and readable way, then I'd recommend Andrew Ollerton's most recent book, Romans, A Letter That Makes Sense of Life. Now, if you look at the front cover of Ollerton's book, you'll discover that he chooses to unpack Romans through describing a journey, which for those of us starting out on this confidence devotional journey, or any other Lenten resource over the next few weeks, would seem to be appropriate. Ollerton writes this, It's been said that if the New Testament were the Himalayas, Romans would be Mount Everest and chapter 8 would be the summit. He then goes on to describe the journey to the summit, which is helpful for us because that is a description, therefore, of the first eight chapters. He says, firstly, we need to consider the original context and survey the route of the gospel. Then we head down into the valley of sin, a low point from which we all need rescuing. The crux of salvation reveals how Jesus has secured the way out by faith. And this brings us on our journey to the place of peace, where we can take a breather and bask in the love of God. Then we press on up the ridge of freedom and suddenly we will emerge onto the summit of hope and enjoy panoramic views of God's eternal purpose. So with that in mind, let's read our passage for this afternoon. We're going to start at verse 31 of Romans chapter 8 and we're going to read to the end of the chapter the section that's headed more than conquerors in our church Bible. So this is what Paul has to say. What then shall we say in response to these things? That is, all of what's happened up to now in his letter. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall hardship or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And those words bring to a close the first major section of Paul's writings. They they draw us to consider this glorious summit of God's saving work for us through Christ Jesus. 
And whereas so much of our contemporary Christian culture tends towards singing songs and telling testimonies in the first person singular with that focus on I, Paul in this passage shifts our gaze since his focus is solely fixed on Jesus. It's all about him, he says. Notice how many times he uses the word he or him. It's only, says Paul, as we fix our gaze on Christ that we can have assurance of God's love and provision. The good news of God isn't simply the point of entry into God's kingdom, of course. It's also the hope and the security that sustains us for the journey. It's the place to gain faith confidence. Now, in John Stott's commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans, he points out that there are five unanswerable questions in the section that we have read together. And I'd like for us to consider them briefly one at a time in the light of our overall theme of confidence. Paul, in what I think is a deliberately forthright way, challenges anyone to deny the truth of what he has to say. Paul's conviction is that nothing and no one can ultimately separate God's people from him. And he sets out his case in these verses. So question one, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if Paul had simply asked who is against us, we, along with Paul's first hearers, would have been able to supply a long list of pertinent answers. And Paul's not being naive here. In fact, he goes on in the middle part of this section to name several things that were particularly adversarial for him. We see that in verse 35. But the essence of the question is found in the use of the little word if, or rather since, that he uses right at the outset. For the reason for Paul's confidence stems from the verse that comes immediately before the section that we read. Paul writes, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God is working for the ultimate good of his people because he loves them. And because it's easy to get sidetracked into trying to unravel what is meant by the word predestined, we're in real danger, I think, of missing the point of Paul's words here. Predestination isn't, I don't think, used in the sense of divine determinism, that all or any of our actions are determined by God. Instead, it appears to have a more limited sense, simply that God has predetermined that all who are in Christ will ultimately be conformed to the image of Christ and adopted as children of God. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. And it's important to notice, and I think pertinent to Paul's argument, that the first three elements have taken place already within the storyline of our spiritual lives. Glorification is the exception, because from our perspective, although not, of course, from God's, it still lies in the future. However, Paul uses the past tense to describe it, since the predetermined nature of God's action is based upon his unfailing purpose and his unwavering love, since God is for us. Tim Keller, in his commentary, Romans for You, talks about these four actions of God as being rather like a chain. He writes, Christians are able to look back down the chain and know that before creation, God foreloved them and predetermined them to be justified. And a Christian can look up the chain and know that in eternity, they will know unimaginable glory. 
But of course there is a mystery here, isn't there? Since God determined from creation that Christ's death and resurrection would be the means by which fallen humanity could experience restoration. Personally, I can't say that I fully understand that. However, I do appreciate the result of that divine predetermination. Since through that particular action, God assigned a specific place within his kingdom for any who, through their own free will, choose Christ. That's you and I, if we have made that step of faith. Which brings us to the second question. Question two. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Once again, we get to see that Paul's phrasing of the question helps to draw out the truth that's contained within it. Paul argues his point from the greater to the lesser. If God has done the greater thing in order to secure our salvation, then surely that is the guarantee that determines the continuing unfailing generosity of God towards us, even in lesser things. And it's here, I think, that we can sometimes fall prey to doubt. I'm convinced that my understanding of God is very often a distorted one. It's based predominantly on my finite and ultimately selfish view of the kind of God I think God ought to be. The German-American philosopher and theologian Paul Tillich, in his book Courage to Be, talks about the need to have absolute faith in the God above God. Now, it's true to say that some of Tillich's work is not necessarily that easy to engage with. And on first reading, this phrase would appear to support that idea. But helpfully, Tillich goes on to explain what he means. Absolute faith, says Tillich, is believing in something while recognising the doubts that we have. It's rather like saying, I can't, but I will. But what about the second half of Tillich's phrase, the God above God? Well, Tillich's argument here aligns with what I described earlier. The God above God is the God that exists outside of the limits that I have placed upon him. The God that lies outside of the safety of words and concepts. Or as Tillich says, the God who appears when God has disappeared. And the way that Paul helps us to engage with any doubts we might have is to point us to the cross. Since the ultimate centre of our faith isn't a way of thinking or even a set of theological beliefs, as helpful as those may be, but instead it's a person, it's Christ. Paul consistently, throughout the letter to the Romans, points his readers towards Christ. He is the foundation of our faith. He is the only place we can look for security. And it's that intense and particular focus, of course, that has shaped our engagement with John's Gospel during our morning series, Come and See. There the focus has been, and will continue to be, unashamedly, on Christ, who is within himself, the way, the truth, and the life, as we read in John 14, verse 6. As C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross-Centred Life, writes this, The evangelical orientation is so often inward and subjective. We are far better at looking inward than we are at looking outward. Instead, we need to expend our energies extolling Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our third question that Paul poses. Who will bring any charge against those God has chosen? Once again, it's a rhetorical question. 
that is equivalent uh, to an emphatic denial. In a sense, the question is, who would dare bring a charge against those God has chosen? The scene in view, it would appear, is one of a courtroom, but it describes a trial in which no prosecution case can possibly succeed. Because of Christ's ultimate victory over sin and death, and as a result of our faith and trust in that victory, we have as an act of God's loving mercy been declared not guilty. There's no double jeopardy in God's justice system. Paul has already spoken about this in his letter, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. We read this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace we now stand. Paul then goes on to offer a fourth question. Who then is the one who condemns? Now, as I was writing this talk, it struck me that the answer to this question is very often ourselves. Considering how many times that we heard the verse from 1 Peter chapter 2 spoken at the introduction to our morning service, you would have thought that the truth of it would have become part and parcel of who we are. But if you're anything like me, it's the view we have of ourselves that so often obscures us from seeing the view that God has of us. Remember that verse, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9. This is what Peter has to say, describing uh, his recipients of his letter, uh, those scattered as he talks about, but also those of us as well who know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice again, the focus in our passage from Romans is on Christ and it's not on us. And this affirmation of Christ's ministry for us is echoed, isn't it, in that familiar Eucharist response. Great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And it's Christ's work alone that results in those who follow him being described in such a way as Peter describes them in his first letter. And it's a description that stands totally independent of how we view ourselves because it stands on the person and the work of Christ. Which brings us to our final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice at the start of this <clears throat> final section that Paul recounts a list of difficulties that he can personally attest as having endured. So in one sense, the second half of verse 35 is a mini-biography. Paul is acutely aware that he's writing to a group of Christians who, whilst possibly not yet encountering direct persecution, would inevitably. And so it was following the great fire that ravaged the city of Rome in AD 64, only a few years after Paul penned this letter, that the ruling emperor Nero, seeking to divert all blame from himself, instigated a city-wide purge of all Christians within the capital, a purge that led to countless deaths. The Roman historian Suetonius tells us this, Nero showed neither discrimination nor moderation in putting to death whomever he pleased on whatever pretext. But Paul says, whatever the circumstances that surround us, 
The fact that God is for us and the knowledge that Christ loves us provides the basis for an unshakable assurance of faith. The couplets in verses 38 and 39 as are written as hyperbole. Paul writes in extremes in order to ensure his readers get the point that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's God's love, says Paul, that provides the focus for our confidence. So Paul's five unanswerable questions, as Stock calls them, are not arbitrary. Paul chose them, it would appear very deliberately, since when taken together they describe the kind of God we believe in. In the space of just a few verses, Paul seeks to provide for his readers all the evidence that they need to live faith-confident lives. I am convinced, says Paul, that nothing can frustrate God's purposes, since God is for us. And there is nothing to limit his generosity, since God did not spare his son. There is nothing and no one who can accuse those who follow Christ, since we have all been justified, pronounced not guilty because of the work of Christ. And nothing can put us outside of God's love, since God's love, his very essence, is revealed in Christ. The 17th century writer and academic John Campbell Sharp, who was for several years the rector of St Andrews University in Edinburgh, wrote these words that later became a hymn. And it's with these words that I'd like to close. Sharp writes, Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with all thy mighty grasp of me. Lay hold of me with thy strong grasp, let thy almighty arm in its embrace my weakness clasp, and I shall fear no harm. Thy purpose of eternal good let me but surely know, on this I'll lean, let changing mood and feeling come or go. Let's pray, shall we, as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity of looking into your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, and we thank you for his letter to the church in Rome, penned so many years ago, and yet so relevant for us. And Heavenly Father, we just pray as we continue in this series, that we may know something of the faith confidence that you want to build and grow in us through your Spirit. Help us to engage, we pray, uh, with the readings that we have in front of us, with your word and with your spirit, as you help us to grow. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would just be aware of one another in that process too, as we seek to build together as community, that we seek to just honour you in everything that we do. Help us, we pray. To be those who have faith confidence, confidence to take out into this world, not arrogance, but confidence to build your kingdom in the places where you have placed us, we ask. We ask these things in your name, in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who to know is life eternal. Amen.